Hello and welcome to Living Stones, a podcast of conversations with the people of Red Mountain Community Church, highlighting the victories and struggles, the snapshots and stories of the people sitting right next to you. In theory, on Sunday morning, we will hopefully get back to that eventually. I'm Peter Franzen from Spirit Blade Productions and your fellow seat warmer at Red Mountain Community Church. My co-host today is Jake, uh, is it Jerry or Ajiri? I keep... Ah, Jerry. Ah, Jerry. Ah, Jerry. Come on. Okay. All right. Jake Ah, Jerry, our pastor of high school ministry and one of two pastors, along with Matt Gibson, who will soon be uh, working to start a new church in West Mesa called Garden City Church, which I understand will involve the construction of a giant domed community made entirely of vines and flowers. Can exactly you, right. Can you confirm that? Does that have? Does that name have some other significance? Nope. Nope. Just the garden, just the the big dome. Just the dome? dome? All right, great. Well, please send us pictures. We'll put that on on the Red Mountain uh, website. I can't can't wait for that. Um, All right, so I've been making the rounds... With this, I'm really giving you an opening. Is that really just, there's no, no yeah, thing? Yeah, is I'll, it named I'll, after something I was like, else? are we just going to go for it, huh? We're going to move past that. That's what I like you, it. That's, the, that's the vibe you were giving me. I was like, we're going to blow through, baby. Okay, great. No, okay, no. Go back. No, so. the idea is that as you look at the story of the scriptures, it begins in a garden. And uh, the story of the scriptures is that, man, right away we see that humanity has broken that and they're driven out of the garden. And then the story is God redeeming and restoring creation. And then as you end the book of the scriptures, it's a garden-like city Mm. coming down out of heaven to earth. And so the idea is that as pictures of the kingdom of God um, continue to, uh, to break into our world, that that we want to be an outpost there. Mm. Uh, we want to be a, an outpost of the kingdom of God in West Mesa, just like Red Mountain is in East Mesa. And so we want to be a part of the process of God's kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven. Cool. Yeah. I do like the idea of a dome too, though. If you could incorporate that, like a vegetable dome. We'll work some on it. Kind. Okay. After raise up. Yeah, get yeah. The, that's the right. next is a dome building project. <laughs> yes. Oh, vegetable dome. <laughs> Everybody, <laughs> set aside your money now. <laughs> All right, so I was like, I was going through the list of like podcast episodes, and I realized that you have hosted since the first, since like you and I talked with Jenny, but that was with uh, someone else. I wasn't on that show. That's right. So the last time we've sat down and done this was like the, I don't know, like the second episode of the podcast. It was. And now this yeah. is probably going to be our last episode wow. together, which makes me sad. Um, but I have been, uh, I've had this question that I've been making the rounds with the pastors on, yep. and I want your answer on it too, and that is. If you could have another skill set or talent that you don't currently have and had to choose another career that you'd be successful enough, you know, in using this skill or talent to support yourself in, what would you choose? That I don't currently have? That you don't currently have. I mean, it's it's not well. So I'm you, good you, enough you, to be an NBA player, so that's out. It's it's not that, that you okay. can be. You have to be devoid of this ability. I'm yep. just saying you you have to be. You have to possess a brand new skill or talent, or it would have to be dramatically increased to the point where you could make a living off of it in that in that a field related to it. Yeah, I'd probably be a football player. Mm. Yeah, I'm very big, Peter. Yeah, very tall. Yeah. Yeah. Just inc- incredibly muscular. Yeah. Um, and so, but right now I just don't have the skill set to play football. Yeah. So, mm. I used to like fantasize about like if I got superpowers, mm-hmm. 
I wouldn't become a superhero because yep. that's just too scary and dangerous. Put my loved ones in danger. But if I had like the flash of super speed, I wouldn't use it to like race around the world like super like like a million miles an hour or whatever. I would use it to be just fast enough to be like this amazing football player, soccer player, something like that. Yep. But people wouldn't know that I have superpowers. Mm -hmm. They would just say, wow, that dude is amazing. But because the powers are supernatural, my form would be really off. And I wouldn't really know the ways, the, 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 yeah. the, like the rules of the game. But nobody could, and, cut, could and touch you. They, they, like they would marvel at this amazing player who really doesn't seem to understand the game at all. And he looks really weird while he's joggling around. He's, he's flabby and stuff. It's, I don't know how he moves across the field the way he does. But this man, is, is he fast. Yes, this is just a sight <laughs> to see. And I would be like a media sensation. And yeah, that's... I can see it. These are the things that go through my mind. Um, how are you killing time and uh, during quarantine and uh, finding ways to entertain yourself when you have that those windows of entertainment yep. time? So there's a couple of things that we're doing right now. We created a group me, which for those of you who aren't digitally savvy like me, I had Kenny set it up, our student ministries intern. But we have a group me, so we've got uh, a link that we can send to every high school student in our ministry, so where they can come and they can join into. It's like a large group chat. Okay. So as of right now, we've got. 50 or 60 kids in there. And so I've been checking in with them. I've been uh, checking in with leaders and just seeing how everybody's doing. Uh, I've had the chance to get a lot of reading done, which that's been really great too. And nice. um, just to, you know, kind of slow down a little bit. Nice. That's been, that's been a nice piece of this. Nice. I've got a big board game set up in my office that I'm playing by myself. Nice. That's been really What's fun. it called? Sword and Sorcery Immortal Souls. Nice. It's like a, it's like a, like your adventurers going through like a, is like it like a, a Domino's game? That's exactly okay. what it is. Yeah, that's, sense that's, yeah, that's, <laughs> all right. Uh, let's talk about the poll. And let's be honest, nobody was surprised, were they, to hear that I would be playing a, a board game all by myself. And that has actually nothing to do with quarantine. This is a thing I do. <laughs> all right, the poll at rmcchurch.org slash podcast. True or false, soda fountain Coke tastes better than a can of Coke poured over ice. We had 60 people respond. That's a, that's a really good response. Great. Good job, family. There's a correct answer here as well. I'm anxious to hear. Yeah, let's see how they did. Um, so again, true or false, soda fountain Coke tastes better than a, Coke, a can of Coke poured over ice. 75% said true. 25% said false. Three people said Mexican Coke, Coke trumped everything, which wasn't technically an option. Uh, one person said Smashburger's Fountain Coke was terrible. Another said they heard McDonald's Fountain Coke was great. And another person said Filiberto's had the best Fountain Coke. Jake? 75% of the people got it right. The correct yeah. answer is fountain drinks. Fountain drinks. Yes. Fountain From restaurants. Yeah. I've never been one of those who can tell like where this restaurant has better Coke than this restaurant and uh -huh. that sort of thing. I know Jessica believes that Nando's has the best Diet Coke, but... Oh, really? Huh. Okay. I, I think she's nuts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I, I would have problems with this kind of question because Coke, I mean, it's not Pepsi. If I were a polytheist, I'd be convinced that Pepsi is the nectar of the gods. Mm. That is a beautiful, beautiful drink. Um, but I, I do, I, I'm with you. I, there's something about having a fountain drink, whether it's Pepsi or Coke. I prefer the fountain version over the, the can or the bottle version. I wonder if it's because the mix is like, it gets watered down. It, yeah. And so it's maybe a little more refreshing, you know, there's something uh, that's what I'm wondering. That's an one. I don't know. But. So I will tell you, I like 
Diet Dr. Pepper better in a can that's cold oh my than I do from a fountain drink, though. Dr. Pe- Pepper tastes like cough medicine. Dave, have you ever noticed the similarity in flavors between Dr. Pepper and the standard flavor of cough medicine? Is it like a cherry? Are there hints of cherry? Well, Dr. Well, Pepper? Dr. Pepper cherry is like if you, you have cherry in it, but without that, it's just, doc, it's just cough syrup. That's probably why they call it Dr. Pepper, because a doctor invented it. <laughs> probably. Oh, man. How did they get all of you people to drink that horrible concoction? Well, earlier today, Jake and I spent some time talking with Jeff Davis, who I don't know if he prefers Coke or Pepsi. We did not ask him that, but uh, he had a lot to share about being- He seems like a Coke guy. He does? You think so? Mm-hmm. All right. Place your bets, folks. Probably Diet Coke. Place your bets. Maybe Diet Dr. Pepper. We'll see if we can bring you that information on the next episode. <laughs> but he shared with us uh, just his perspective as a Christ follower who is navigating being a teacher in government and who uh, ran for public office. And we also had a great discussion about just uh, talking about politics as Christians, talking, having those kinds of conversations with each other. I mean, there's so much to this interview, um, so I hope you guys will sit forward and turn your thinking caps on and really engage with it, because there's a lot of good stuff in it. Here it is now. Well, Jeff, thank you for sitting down and, uh, and doing this. We're going to uh, talk about, like, your life a little bit, your perspective on uh, a number of things, but it's it's all kind of floating around a little bit, the topic of politics, and when you came yeah, in... Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, when you came <laughs> in, you said, this is the scariest thing that I've ever done for, <laughs> for Red Mountain uh, Yeah, Church. yeah, for, for a lot of reasons, I think. Um, it's it's hard not to feel, you know, a little exposed being being out here and saying, like, oh, let's talk about your life story and also politics. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I'm a little, a little nervous for sure. Yeah. Well, we're not going to like, I mean, we're not going to like talk about politics, talk about politics, you know, but, uh, but that's certainly relevant to you and your interests and your, and your life. So, um, first, why don't you just start us off by giving like a, a, just a brief snapshot of like the kind of home you grew up in, like what, you know, what part of the country and just maybe a couple things about your family life. Yeah. I, I had what I think a lot of people would consider just, you know, kind of the ideal childhood. I, I really uh, was um, very fortunate in, in that regard to have um, both my parents were, uh, were followers of Christ, and uh, I grew up in the church. Um, my, uh, I, had a, I had one younger brother, uh, so we grew up in, um, in North Texas, in the Dallas area, Arlington, Texas specifically. Okay. Um, I was born in California, but I have no memory of that. That was five when I was five weeks old. My my family moved to to Texas, so that's really where where I grew up. Um, and and really did not you know experience um, anything in the way of like you know uh, childhood trauma or, or anything like that. It was a very just stable upbringing, and and um, I have nothing to really be um, uh, sad about looking back on that and. The there was one thing. My my dad worked in the newspaper industry. He he worked in a, a variety of sales and marketing positions for uh, for for some years before that. Uh, my mom was a teacher, uh, business teacher, and when uh, my dad got into newspapers and kind of settled into his his lane there and doing marketing for for newspapers, you know the the '90s and beyond were not the easiest time to be in that industry. Mm. Uh, things started changing very rapidly. 
um, especially as the, the internet emerged and started to cut into uh, the profitability of, of that industry. So papers across the country were getting bought and sold like crazy hmm. uh, by, by bigger conglomerates. And uh, so as a result, his career kind of got you know, thrown around a little bit. And so for, for a period of about six or seven years in my early teens and beyond, um, we bounced from you know, the Dallas area up to uh, a little town called Moon Township, Pennsylvania, outside of Pittsburgh, oh. where he worked for a, a newspaper doing marketing for them. We were only there for a year and a half, and then that one got sold, and he got moved over to the East Valley Tribune in Mesa. That's mm. what brought me here okay. when I was uh, 13 years old, okay. 14, actually. Um, and then... I stayed here and, you know, spent my high school years here and my first year and a half of college. And then at that point, uh, he got moved again and, and took a job as a publisher of a newspaper in uh, in Indiana. And so he and my my mom and brother moved there and I stayed behind. Um, okay. Partly because, you know, college had begun, but mostly because uh, I was uh, dating a beautiful young lady named Marissa, <laughs> who uh, who eventually became my wife. And um, and I, I definitely was not going to leave that situation. So, uh, so that was, that was why, uh, I ended up here and they ended up in Indiana. And since then he's been to San Marcos, Texas, and now, uh, spring Texas. They've, they've continued oh, bouncing around. My brother's in Indiana now. So, so we kind of got, our whole family kind of got spread across the country as a result of, of all that, uh, tumultuousness in, in his industry. Wow. Um, you know, other than that, you know, we've, we were a very close family. Uh, had a great relationship with my brother and and still do. Um, you know, we still travel to see each other and and travel to see my mom and dad. Um, you know, my mom comes out frequently to see the grandkids and uh, you know we we've had a a great family experience. So that's that's a little bit about you know where I come from and nice. Um, and we've always been part of the church and and my parents have always been active in service where they can be. So then, speaking of the church, when did you arrive at faith in Jesus? Do you remember that? I mean, you were raised in a Christian home. Is yeah, that right? yeah. I was baptized as a, a child around ten years old. I want to say nine okay. or ten years old. I made the decision to to get baptized, but definitely had more moments after that that um, that deepened my commitment. Um, I think that that was a just a gradual process that continued to occur throughout my life, and and at times I've you know been more on track than others for sure. But um, I remember when I was thirteen in Pennsylvania, going to a youth camp that you know just really made a, an impact on um, my mindset and my commitment. And I and I had a moment you know laying in bed in a bunk one night at a, at a youth camp, as I think a lot of people do, where where reflecting on everything through the day, I just wondered, like, had I ever actually stopped and asked Jesus into my heart personally, right? Mm. It's, it's, I know I said I made this commitment when I was younger, and I know that I got baptized, but did I ever really do it, you know, myself that I, and, and so I had a moment where I just, I stopped and, and prayed the prayer of, you know, um, asking Christ into my heart to, to be, you know, my personal Lord and Savior, um, and to forgive me of my sins. And I remember that moment. Um, a few years later at at another camp, uh, camps are great, aren't they? <laughs> the standard rededication at summer camp. I'm with you. Indeed, ya. yeah. So uh, so I had another camp when I was a uh, going into my senior year of high school uh, where 
there was a, a call to to commitment and and they asked um, people to commit if they were if if full time you know ministry was on their heart or if a commitment to to a lifetime of ministry was on their heart hmm. you know in addition to you know coming to faith and and I felt really pulled in that moment like that that I needed to, to make that commitment and I didn't know what that was going to mean because I I had no interest in being a a pastor necessarily I I wasn't a good musician or anything like that yet so um, keyword yet well I'm still not a, <laughs> not that great I, I, Jake can play circles around me I know at least but um, I went to I I had just started learning guitar even and I you know barely knew what I was doing but I. I made that commitment. I I kind of came forward and and you know got down on my knees and somebody was praying over me, and it was only in maybe the the two years after, like over the course of the next two years after, that I really figured out that what that was going to look like was just making myself available um, to my church in whatever capacity that was going to be. You know, mm. um, it wasn't going to be. Going to seminary, becoming a pastor, yeah. being a uh, you know being a full time uh, missionary or or pastoral staff or something. It was just going to mean um, availability and just commitment to uh, to doing what I could. Um, and music ended up being one of the primary venues through which that occurred, but it wasn't you know the only thing. Um, so anyway, and I've been blessed to be able to be part of, of church work in, in a volunteer capacity uh, ever since. So wherever I've been at, you know, I've tried at least. So you are a public school teacher, you teach government. Yes. Um, for which I used to sub for you back in the day yes, when I was yes. doing that. Uh, you were my go-to guy. So the uh, <laughs> first call I'd make every time I, I had to be gone for some reason. Well, I always so. enjoyed your classroom and I could always tell that like... Um, I mean, not like with all the kids that are necessarily getting churned in and out, but like there was always at least one or two classes that I could just tell from the vibe they like their teacher. You know, they like they you know they they like this class. They like being here. You know, and, I appreciate uh, that. Thanks. So yeah. that was that was I always really enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, so why did you become a public school teacher and government and, and that that realm of things yeah. in particular? Well, certainly I was always fascinated by by the subject. I was. Um, Always a, a a big history person. That was all. Those were always my favorite classes. Uh, when I was a uh, when I was in high school, I joined uh, our, our school speech and debate team. And my favorite events to do in uh, speech and debate were uh, it was student congress. And so the the idea of a student congress is that like we identify some kind of public policy problem somewhere, and you as a student write your own proposed bill. Uh, to fix that problem, and then we get together and we start debating it, and then you know you try and pass it like a Congress, right? And and that was always just such a fun exercise to me mm. for some reason. <laughs> I know that doesn't sound like most people's idea of fun, but I just loved it. And uh, and then I took a, uh, a government class, AP U.S. Government with uh, Mrs. Reese uh, at Mountain View, and like that was kind of a, an, an awakening as well, where I just sat in there and went like, this is what I want my career to be. Mm. Like if I could spend every day of my life doing what, what she's doing and, and, you know, spend all my, my work life, like in this classroom, reliving this experience, like that would just be the best. Huh. So I wanted to, to make that happen. Um, 
the the idea of a teaching career also always appealed to me because I always imagined I'd I'd want to be, you know, around and available for my family if and when you know I ever had one, and, um, you know, just knowing that you know there's there's a limited amount of school hours in the day. Yeah, mm-hmm. you take some work home as a teacher, but but you know your your work day's done at a certain time. Your kids are out of school around the same time. Yeah, uh, you get your weekends and your school holidays and stuff with your, your, your children, hopefully. So that always appealed to me too, but really it was about just wanting that experience again. So, uh, I actually, that year asked Mrs. Reese, can I come back and student teach for you four years from now, uh, Mm. once I go to ASU and she agreed to take me and she did, you know, all the necessary things. She'd never had a student teacher before and you have to go through certain classes and processes to be allowed to have a student teacher. Oh, wow. So she did that for me in the next couple of years. And, uh, and I came back and taught for her. And then, I don't know, magically, uh, I guess that year, like Mountain View was a very like tough school to get into. It was a very desirable place to work. Mm. Um, and that year that I was graduating from college and student teaching from her, uh, she we we had our department chair leave to go start a new program at uh, Westwood High School, and she got promoted to department chair. So we now had an opening, and she was going to decide who to hire. Oh so my it gosh. was like I I just could not have you know orchestrated that any better. So wow. uh, I I have to think that the the hand of God was was putting me in Mountain View, like yeah. just knowing the way that that. That had been put on my heart four years earlier, and then the way that 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 all just kind of came together, you know, um, in two thousand four. Um, yeah, so so that's it's it's been a great place to work, and and I I really feel like I've made a lot of important connections and 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 a difference there. Um, I hope yeah. to to a lot of students, not all of them. I, a lot of them are are just there to check the box and graduate and, yeah, yeah. and wish that, you know, they could do without their 55 minutes of Mr. Davis every day, but, you know. So I've got a couple territory. of questions, Jeff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, number one, everybody's wondering, what was your bill about in high school? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Uh, I had so many of them. Like, I did student congress, you know, for two and a half years, you know, like 10 times a year. So I I could not tell what you some of the bills that I wrote. What was your most impactful bill that you wrote? The most impactful bill that I wrote? <laughs> Oh man, uh, I gotta think about that. I probably, I probably ran a lot of bills that were about fiscal stuff. I loved like government budget things and oh trying to gosh. trying to <laughs> trying to reduce the debt. Yeah, uh, trying to figure out new ways to structure the tax code. Uh, man, oh man, I had I had some some fun, relatively radical ideas I read about taxation that I was like, here we go, this is gonna. This is going to solve the world's problems. Oh my gosh! And I don't really think that y'all want me to go into the the details of of the fair tax system, oh, but but I am so uh, glad there are people like you, Jeff. Man. That's really important. Yeah, <laughs> making making a fake difference in our fake Congress back in high school, right? So go 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 ahead. That's okay. Yeah. The second question I yeah. had was uh, Joe Hughes has been telling me that the reason you got a job at Mountain View is because you couldn't hack it at Red Mountain. Yeah, so that's you definitely want to set not the true. record straight. No, here. here's the here's the record on this. Uh, number one. If you look at the test results that are produced out of Mountain View and Red Mountain, oh, for, we're for going there. Term, we're going here. Okay. If you want to look at the number of state championships that all of the collective athletic programs have produced, the number of academic decathlon championships, the number Ooh. of speech and debate championships, wow, uh, the number of model United Nations championships—that's my program at Mountain View. What about Congress? Uh, that's speech and debate. Yeah, speech and debate. So okay. yeah, 
we are crushing Red Mountain in every category. <laughs> oh. We have been for decades. This is not a rivalry. This is this is like you know an annoying kid brother uh, <laughs> in Red Mountain who who just like okay. is always jealous of the achievements of his more successful older brother. Let That's the all record it is. show. Okay. Oh man. So, like, yeah, if you have any feedback for this episode, jaugiri at rmcchurch.org. Uh, <laughs> Go Toros. Going to get some heat on this one. All right. So, you're living your dream. Yeah. Being a teacher, where yeah. exactly where you wanted to be. Yeah. But then, at some point, you decided, I'm going to also run for public office. Uh-huh. So, tell me uh, why you decided to do that. All right. Well... The the big reason is uh, honestly the school system. Like that was that was the the major motivating factor. Um, I had noticed um, 2009, 2010, and and beyond some worrying trends. Um, so one of them was about just a general attitude of respect for public employees and mm. and the kind of work that that we do. So my experience had had been that you know there was a a time when you know we've I think there's always been a mentality across society that, oh teachers are underpaid and and teachers get into the work knowing that that's that's the case. Um but what I started to hear regularly throughout a lot of conversations I was having with um with some people was this idea that like, you know, some people are, you know, rightfully earning their money and are creating jobs and are making this society a, a better place. And then, then there's people who are sort of like, you know, living off the government. Right. And, and there was, there was a little bit of a, of a denigration of, of those kinds of people. And increasingly I started to hear like public employees being kind of grouped in that category, bureaucrats mm. kind of being grouped in that category of like people who, you know, if you're being paid by by the taxpayer, like that's you're you're a drain on society. Mm. And it was it was not not common that I was hearing that from you know regular people I'd interact with. I think that you know most people have respect for police, firefighters, teachers, um, you know everybody who who works in the public sector. Uh, but, but among a lot of political elites, and particularly like some members of the Arizona State Legislature, I started hearing this kind of theme of, you know, that that some types of work were not as valuable as others, and that the government schools were, you know, kind of a waste of our resources. They weren't doing a good job, and mm. and that was not my experience at all. Like, you know, my experience of working in not only Mountain View, but knowing a lot of colleagues that I had at other schools throughout Mesa, whether they were schools in, you know, relatively, you know, well-off middle to upper middle class neighborhoods like like Mountain View's in or or in, in more um, diverse and, and economically disadvantaged situations, uh, the teachers there were doing like the very best they could and doing great work with, you know, what, what resources they had. Mm-hmm. Um, and... And there seemed to be this kind of just increasing, you know, desire of people to just trash on, you know, government work in general. So uh, I actually had had started thinking about running uh, summer of 2011. And part of it was, you know, I back to my student Congress speech and debate days, I'd always kind of seen the idea of being in a legislature as kind of a fun, you know, 
exciting experience of problem solving and mm. trying to get something done and working together as a team to, you know, to make compromises and 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 pass something. That that always seemed like a fun exercise to me, for one thing. Uh, and then and then as I I saw this kind of cause of like, increasingly I'll say it was it was mostly on you know the Republican side of the aisle that I was seeing people. Um, you know, hammer on on public employees and and all public spending. Period is just problematic. Mm. I, I just wanted to kind of try and reverse the narrative on that because because I wanted you know good government and I wanted you know people who um, I wanted people who do work to serve the public to be rewarded for that work and to have the resources they needed to do a good job. So uh, so I actually was talking to a, a teacher friend of mine at uh, summer school. I taught next to a guy named Scott Thomas and. We would always make a routine because the summer school day was 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. of just nonstop government lecture. Mm. And we, to keep ourselves sane, we would always take a walk during the 10-minute breaks just outside around the campus. And so I started laying this out to him one day, and he just said, I, I got a friend you should get in contact with. And, um, and he passed along a name of a guy named Chad Haywood to me. Um, and Chad was a guy who Scott had known from you know back in high school and... And in his later life, Chad had grown up to become like a big time Republican Party organizer and activist hmm. uh, and worked for a lot of people's campaigns. So I gave Chad a call and we went and sat down and uh, had some coffee together and got to know each other a little bit. And he heard about my story and uh, he just kind of, I think, filed me away as somebody who's interested in running one day. Um, then comes to come to 2012. Um Every every time there's a, a census, all the district lines get redrawn to account for the changes in population. And in 2012, all these new district lines got drawn for the Arizona State Legislature. And there was a district that had got drawn that none of the current incumbent Republicans lived in anymore. Hmm. Uh, so it was sort of like, you know, open season for anybody to go, you know, to that district. And my assumption is that he had gone out and tried to recruit a bunch of actual candidates with actual political experience and name ID. And when he ran through, you know, names one through 25 on the list and none of them wanted to run, <laughs> they they came to me and said like, hey, you happen to live in this district that, that you know, nobody's in right now. Um, are you interested in, in running? And I initially said no and then felt awful for the next like three days is this, you know, mm. churned in my stomach. And um, I don't know if it was, you know, the spirit speaking to me and saying like, this is important, you need to do this uh, or, or what, but I just, I knew it was the wrong decision. And I knew that, that um, I was going to regret not saying yes, if I didn't come back and do it. So then I did. I, and I, I called him back and I said, I, I will run. Um, and that started in about you know, March of, of 2012 for a, a campaign that was going to take place in, you know, an election that was going to take place in August of 2012 for the Republican primary. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's, that was how I got into the race. Um, yeah. So tell me about that experience, what that whole thing was like. Goodness. Um, so many lessons learned, I have to say. <laughs> like, um, I don't even know where to begin really to, to explain like what all I learned, but I guess I'll just start throwing some things out there and, and, if it's out of order, then then so be it. We'll try and reconnect all the dots. Yeah, but, that's fine. Um, so one thing I learned is that running for office is um, 
the the people who have the best shot at being successful at running for office, based on the the system that we have built, that we've put in place for for getting elected officials, are are people who can, you know, get out there and and express supreme confidence in in their own abilities to to solve problems and get things done. Now, I don't know if other people's experiences are different. Um, when you run for a nonpartisan office, like you know, for example, I know you know Rex ran for for city council for many years and ran for mayor. Rex Griswold. Uh, Rex Griswold, yeah. yeah. And 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 I don't know if the nonpartisan uh, races where there's not Republican and Democratic Party are, are different. Um, his experience may have been totally different from mine, and um, he may have his own set of lessons that he learned from it. And I don't know if anybody else in our congregation has ever run, but um, my experience on the partisan side was that you know you you get rewarded for for going out and really just expressing total confidence in in your abilities as a leader to get things done and and make things happen and that your experience is the right experience and um and and being capable of just i had to scour my list of friends and acquaintances for the last 15 years and start reaching out to people that i had not really had any meaningful contact with for five years potentially, mm. and then start asking them for favors and money, you know? Mm. And like, Oof. that is a, that is, it, it was an awful experience for me. That was the part that I hated the most was having to just kind of, you know, go out there. So the reason for that is that you have to get to even be on the ballot, you have to get, um, in my case, for, for the race I was running in, about 750 signatures on a petition of people who live in your district uh, to put you on the ballot, uh, who are registered voters. And I, I don't know 750 people who live, hmm. you know, east of, of Power Road. So, like, I was really dependent on, you know, people to help me find those people hmm. and people to, to go around and knock on doors and stuff. So, wow. um, and, and it was tough. And you also, because I didn't have access to, you know, you you were going to need about thirty to forty thousand dollars at the time to run for a legislative seat mm. in your campaign account. I did not have access to that kind of money personally as a school teacher, um, you know. And then um, I, I didn't have a lot of people capable of donating large sums of money either. I didn't have connections to special interest groups or, mm. or you know, anything like that. Uh, so, so I was trying to raise it through the clean election system. Uh, which is meant to help like kind of small time candidates like me get equivalent uh, ability to compete. So what clean elections makes you do is is if you can get about 250 registered voters in your district to donate $5 to your campaign, then the state will provide you basically the amount of money that you need to run. Okay. And it was about that 30 grand, right? Um, so, you know, calling people up and saying, hey, I haven't talked to you in five years, but can I have $5, <laughs> right? And have you got this paperwork? You know, some people were willing, others were, you know, it was like, oh, I, I'm sorry, you know, whatever. But mm -hmm. um, but just even finding 250 people was was mm -hmm. tough. Um, and this is where geography plays in a little bit too. So another little quirk of the election system that I experienced is that when when you're running for office, it's entirely based on geography. So because I lived east of Power Road near Skyline High School at the time, we were renting a house there. Uh, because that's where I lived, the voters that had to sign my petition and donate to me needed to live in that district, which was east of Power Road and south of McKellops, and then going into part of Apache Junction as well. Well, 
where I go to church is close. It's, you know, Red Mountain Community Church is here at Wrecker and 202, but it's not quite in that district. And so people that I knew at church were, some of them, a few of them were, were in that district, mm-hmm. but I would say 75 or 80% of them, I don't know if any of you guys have church demographic information to correct <laughs> me on this, but most of them lived either north of McKellips or west of Power and and didn't, you know, live in the district that I needed them to live in. Yeah. Uh, uh, same with my school. I taught at Mountain View High School, which was in North Central Mesa. Mm. And so my, my students and their parents and my alumni and their parents, uh, my coworkers did not live in the district. Oh, so man. I was just, you know, um, just throwing crap at the wall, trying to find somebody anywhere who, who lived in the district and still didn't help me out. And, and I was very grateful there were some. And Peter, I believe you were actually one of my petition signers and, and donors, if I'm not mistaken. I'm sure, yeah, I'm uh, sure. I knew you lived in the area, and I reached out, <laughs> and I really appreciated it. And I know there were many other people here at RMCC who, who did uh, help me out because they were able to. Um, and I was so grateful for, uh, for all of that help because, you know, it was so necessary to get me even just on the ballot. Man. Um, but you realize very quickly that geography plays a big role, and... Um, which brings me to another lesson I learned. Like this is, you know, kind of a, th- there is sometimes a stereotype or assumption amongst a lot of people that like, oh, the LDS church, they, they really control the politics around here. You know, they, mm. and, and some of that is, is a myth, but there is a built-in advantage that, um, that people in, in that faith have, which is that church is based on geography for them, right? Oh, so the ward everyone, system. The, the ward system. Yeah. Everyone you go to church with, everyone is your neighbors and is in the district with you. And yeah. so if you're running for public office, at a minimum, everyone you know from your church social circles is you know, capable of helping you to mm. get on the ballot. And mm. uh, I, I never knew that about, you know, about the process. And I'm not saying that that, you know, is the cause of you know, sure. everything we assume about it. Sure. But it's just, it's just one of those interesting things that I, that I yeah. learned as I was going through it. So um, anyway, uh, so those are some of the things I experienced. It was just a, it was a hard process. And, and I think that I had some failings as a candidate for sure um, in, in just how difficult it was for me to walk up to a stranger's door and knock on the door and introduce myself and say, you know, I'm running for for such and such, and here's why you should vote for me. Yeah. Um, I I don't think I ever truly, you know, developed my you know fast less than two minutes elevator pitch to say like this is why you know I I was doing the best I could, but um, but I don't think uh, I was you know ideal for <laughs> for that kind of mm. uh, of thing. So that's a hard gig. Yeah, yeah. Go and sell um, yourself in two minutes. Oh, and man, there, there are that. some people who, who like, that's just a, a much stronger natural ability that they've got, and I, I really admire that because it was just a, a stomach wrenching process for me every time, you know. And I was doing it day after day for, you know, household after household. So, uh, as much as I could, at least. Yeah, you know, so that that was in 2012. Yeah. And you were not elected. Was not elected. Yeah. Um, so. so you've had time to kind of reflect on that, you know, and just. I mean, have you had questions in your mind like, 
God, what, what, what were you up to with that? And like, what has anything yeah. surfaced? Have any thoughts surfaced? You know, in terms of like the 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 reasons God. I mean, we can only speculate. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I'm not expecting you to have like this, in, you know, uh, uh, crazy insight. But, but I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've speculated and sure. wondered those kinds of things. What kind of thoughts bubble to the surface as you think back and ask God? You know, what was going on there? What was, yeah, I, I guess there's a lot of things that I've learned since. Um, one thing I'll say is that there are definitely um, there's there's definitely good people in in politics. There are a lot of people who who are are in it because they want to do public service. They want to solve problems and they care about their community, um, and and they're going at it for for those reasons. Uh, and there's also a lot of people who are very much um, seeking the the attention, the status, the the mm. the adulation that that comes from uh, from the office, and it's hard to know the difference between you know who's who. Mm. And sometimes I think people are are mixed in their in their motivations as well. Sure, I mean you we're know, complex. You, certainly, until you um, you just you see the way things come out. Like I don't I don't know if this is in, instructive at all, but um, when. When I was running, the way that the state legislative races work is is that we elect two representatives to the House at the same time from each district and one senator. So I and another former public school teacher, a guy named uh, Doug Coleman from Apache Junction, he would, he'd been mayor of Apache Junction for about 16 years previous. And then the, the two of us paired together as like sort of like teammate candidates uh, for the ballot. And we, we, we put our money together for, for some signage. Um, we would do public events in which we would advocate for each other and say, vote for both of us, right? Mm. Um, and, and he was sort of of the same mindset that I was, that like, we'd cut public education funding by too much. Yes, there was a financial crisis we had to deal with in 2008 and 2009, but as the economy's recovering, like, it's time to restore that funding and get our, our, uh, our education system back to where it needs to be. Um, and so we, we ran together on that kind of message, um, our opponents in the race had um, it, it wasn't just a matter of of debating the ideas that we had. It was it was uh, it was really about trying to tear us down. Uh, mm. We did not put out a single negative mailer or or say a, a you know a bad word about them. We simply just said this is what we are going to do. Like vote for us because this is our message, right? Um, and you know there was a there was a mailer that went out that showed. Uh, the the two of us and uh, called us both liars. Uh, mm. Something that that said, oh, when he when he adv- when when Jeff Davis advocates local control and uh, he's he's really just a shill of the teachers unions who's just trying to get more money for for himself and his mm. teacher friends or something. It's like, well, well, yeah. Like I wanted to see you know teachers get paid decently, but that you know it's it's another way to frame it, I guess. Uh, they they attacked his. You know some of some of the things from his record as mayor of Apache Junction that just absolutely did not deserve to be attacked. They characterized in in all these awful ways in these mm. mailers. Um, the worst of it was that they sued um, uh, one of our opponents filed a lawsuit to get us both kicked off the ballot, and it was on a total technicality. Our district, this this new legislative district sixteen created after the census, was the first district ever in Arizona that crossed a county line. We were in. Uh, the far eastern part of Maricopa County, but also crossed into Pima County, or sorry, Pinal County, not Pima. Um, and so when we created our our ballot petition, there's a line on the top where you have to write uh, 
what county you were circulating this petition in. And so we wrote Maricopa slash Pinal on the top because our district crossed both those county lines. If we were circulating at a local Walmart, there were going to be people from Pinal and Maricopa coming there, right? Uh, and so, so we did that, and they filed a lawsuit saying that all of those petition signatures, all those voters who said we should be on the ballot and sign that petition should be thrown out because we put two counties on the top of the petition and didn't mm. just have a Maricopa petition and then a separate Pinal County petition. Huh. So uh, in the end, the judge ruled in our favor and was just like, this is you know, a new question in legislation. We're not going to throw out the decisions of all these voters just because of this technicality. Yeah. Um, but my campaign had to pay for a, an attorney to defend us from those, uh. Uh, those issues. And you can't use clean elections money, which means I had to have like fundraised money of people who you know thought they were helping me to buy signs and put mail in people's mailbox to get the word out. Instead, I'm paying an attorney just to keep me on the ballot with their money. Oh, it man. was uh, just just a you know nasty little campaign tactics like that that, that yeah. people use. You know, if the two of us got thrown, there were four candidates. If the two of us got thrown off the ballot, there would not have even been a choice for voters in the Republican primary. Mm. So you know, talk about like you know, just trying to win by default rather yeah. than, you know, on, on issues and give voters a real choice. It, it just was not the way that I, I idealized a, a, an election process could be. But hmm. um, so that's the deal. Um, as far as other lessons, I watched what my, my friend Doug, Doug Coleman, who he did get elected and I did not. He came in second. I came in third and the top two get nominated. Okay. Um, so the the... The lady who sued us was the other person who won first place. So, okay, so gotcha. she got nominated as well. Um, so I stayed in close contact with Doug over the next years as he was in the legislature and just witnessed the nastiness of, of what he was going through. Hmm. Um, we had a lot of big issues. Um, Obamacare was, was passed at the national level. The state of Arizona had decisions to make about that. And, you know, he was making decisions that he thought was in the best interest of the state of Arizona. And then he was getting emails and phone calls from all sorts of activists who were just saying awful things about him and mm. threatening him. And um, and he was just dealing with that constantly. Um, he was taking grief from people in public all the time when, when he would go to town, town halls and mm. legislative district events. Um, people at legislative district meetings were voting to censure him and officially reprimand him for for having taken a vote to mm. you know accept health insurance money from the federal government for the state of Arizona mm. um you know it it was just and and I watched what you know what kind of time he had on his hands for for his family as well uh, my kids were very young at the time um Audrey was uh, about 3 years old okay and Austin was you know an infant yeah and I just figured out very quickly that if I wanted to have a life at home with with my kids, you know, in a meaningful way and be able to to spend meaningful time with them that you know, politics was going to be a a tough venue to to you know, to go down to um to be able to have that kind of time. Uh it's just it it's time consuming, it's difficult. And you know what? Honestly, like with all of the the nastiness that we experienced at the times when, you know, Doug was taking grief and I was taking grief and, you know, these mailers and, and messages that were out there and, and the lawsuit and stuff. The person who took it hardest was honestly Marissa. Like mm. she was, you know, a hundred percent my biggest defender and, and advocate, um, as anyone, you know, would, would 
love for their spouse to be. And, and it just ate her up, I know. And she was, you know, carrying a lot of just anger and resentment of, of, of these people of like, why would they do this to you? You know, what yeah. have you ever done to them? You know? Um, so, so it was hard. And, and I, I watched over that next two years, you know, 2013, 2014, just the increasing radicalization and polarization. And um, I had an opportunity here or there to, to step in and try to, to uh, take a seat in the legislature again um, and just did not think it was right anymore. And so mm. I don't know if this was, you know, God's way, the Spirit's way to get me to, like, see in um in myself what my real priorities needed to be and to see that like you you're always going to have this little itch to want to go do you know legislative work and and think that you know a life in as a as a state le- state representative would be a a cool thing and a cool experience for you but you know it's not the right time this mm. is the, and and I just needed to kind of get that out mm. you know to to be confident in going forward and um and doing other things with my life in the meantime so Maybe that was what it was. Mm. Um, you know, I, I I can't I can't tell you with one hundred percent certainty what I I did it for or why why God orchestrated those events the way that He did. But, sure, um, it did. It, it was hard to lose for sure. It was hard to um, to to take this thing where I thought that that God had prompted me and said you need to do this, and then to see it end in you know what could only be seen as, as failure, really, mm. and, and go like, all right, what did that really mean then? What did I, did I misunderstand? Did I, did I misread mm-hmm. the spirit in sure. some way? Um, it, was, it was hard for sure. Yeah. So. so like just hearing about what you saw, what you experienced, and um, just the reality of how some of those things work, it just kind of like reminds me of, of one of the reasons why I, I feel like I mean, well, first, first, my mind just isn't the type that's going to be able to remain interested in a lot of kind of like the nitty gritty details yeah. of politics and government and stuff like that. But on top of that, uh, I'm thinking, well, I don't know who's lying and who's not. Oh, yeah. And then as far as the news reporting on everything, I don't know how oh, they're man. spinning things. And so I just kind of feel like, like, uh, jaded to the point where I'm like, I don't know what to do. Totally. I'm just going to just let it pass by and I guess vote now and then and see yeah. how that works. So I'm really curious, you even more so having just a, a firsthand experience with all of all of that, mm-hmm. um, what your general perspective is on the state of American politics right now. And when I say right now, let's bump that to like maybe two months recent, ago. Recent years, we're, right, This so, is a time capsule yeah. episode of the podcast. We're right in the middle of dealing with COVID-19 and, sure. and quarantine, and the government is, of course, reacting to that. But but if we were to bump the timeline back about two or three months yeah. in your perspective on American politics. Uh, it's not good, Peter. It's not good. Uh, <laughs> these are... These are these are some 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 tough times. Um, I I really think more than anything else, what we are, what we have been losing for about a decade plus, is social trust, a mm-hmm. a general faith in the good intentions of of other people around us, mm. whether you know other Americans, other Arizonans, um, whether we know them personally or not. Uh, mostly those that we that we don't know, right? There, there is a growing uh, lack of trust in um, public institutions, 
in in strangers, et cetera, right? To the point that, and I think that that's partially responsible for uh, things like you know the disrespect that I was hearing for public employees, whether they were bureaucrats or uh, or or teachers or whoever. Um, you know, this idea that if 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 my tax dollars are getting taken from me and getting spent on something that I don't personally see a direct benefit in, that's wrong. That's mm. somebody. That's somebody taking from me. That's somebody who's who's corrupted the process. That's when, when they're like, that's not necessarily true. Just because you personally aren't seeing the direct benefit of that spending doesn't mean it's not in the public interest to spend that money and to hire that person, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and just because you know, another person has a difference of opinion in how to solve the problem of whether it's number of uninsured Americans or number of, of, um, of people who are, um, you know, living on, you know, food nutritional assistance or the number of people who are, are failing to graduate from high school, whatever the public policy problem is, you know, the idea that, um, that, that those who disagree with my way of solving this problem have bad intentions. Mm. They're, they're, they have some, some nefarious interests, you know, in why they're setting it up this way. Um, and there are a lot of theories running around the political science world for why social trust is declining so quickly in America for the last, really, 20 years. Um, and there's, like, this is a, a big topic of study in political science right now, is why we are losing social and institutional trust in this country. Mm. Um, I've seen a lot of theories about it. I have a, my, my particular, uh, theory that, that I ascribe to that I think has the most validity to it is, is that it's really the media. It's media and social media where mm. we are seeing this happen most rapidly. Um, so, you know, 20 years ago, we, we just started to have these things called 24 hour news networks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and our, our, you know, options of what to watch on television started to rapidly expand. So we get to a point where we have, you know, infinite ways for for people to escape watching the news if they don't want to watch the news, right? Yeah. Whatever other channels are out there. Yeah. So what you get with the audience who's actually watching 24-hour news networks is people who are willing to not watch MTV, not watch Comedy Central, you know, not you know, all these other fun things and they, and they want to, you know, watch the news. So it's, it's activists. It's people who are like a little bit, I don't want to say radical, but like, you know, definitely more ideological. And, and those TV news networks started to tailor their message to those audiences. Mm. Right. And so now we've got this very right wing network and very left wing network Mm. that are, that are appealing to a particular base of, of trying to get ratings amongst like, you know, this audience, right. Your, your regular, I, regular is probably the wrong word, but but typical people who aren't that interested in politics, like they just want good government. They want the police system to work. They want the school system to work. They want Congress to solve problems as they emerge nationally. They want their taxes to be as low as possible to to make these these things possible. Um, those people are are generally not tuning in to to twenty four hour networks, and so you get you know, kind of this this right-wing and left-wing media environment in which people are constantly getting told and reinforced why what they believe is in fact correct mm. and why what the other side believes is in fact dangerous for the future of this country and nefarious and particular and, and potentially corrupt and mm. et cetera, et cetera. And social media, I think, has, has um, exacerbated that to an even greater extent. That, you know, when you think about who 
your friends are that you're connected to on a place like Facebook. It's people that you go to church with, people that you work with, people you live near, people who you went to high school with, maybe, you know, it's, there's other ways that we meet people too, but, but it's a lot of people who are in the same professional circle as you, the same religious circle as you, the same community as you. And so you end up with, with a, a kind of, um, vacuum you're living in where it's, it's people who have something in common with you that mm-hmm. are, that are speaking yeah. on your social media platform and your, on your newsfeed. And as they see articles and they repost them over and over and over again, you end up getting this, this news environment that if, if social media is your news source, you're getting told you're right, people like you are right over and over and over again. And you're not really getting exposed to the, the, um, the opinions of others and the, the defense of those opinions of others and the mm. explanation for why these, these other opinions are, are also there and valid. Yeah. Um, it's, the more I, I've thought about this issue, it, it seems to me like the last place we still have in America where people are, you know, sitting around and, and talking with people who are not necessarily like them might be in, you know, a high school government class like mine, mm. uh, where, you know, people from, granted, we're, they're all living in North Central Mesa, but they come from different kinds of households. They come from different faith backgrounds. Yeah. Um, their parents do different things for a living. They have different career aspirations for themselves. And, you know, they, they do at least get to hear some kind of, of difference in perspective. Um, now, now, obviously, I'm kind of over-exaggerating the, the effects that these, these have, but it's not a, it, it doesn't mean it's, it's an unreal effect. Like, it is mm-hmm. really happening. Um, and, and I think that's leading to us getting to a place where you know, when, when you're watching TV news coverage treat politics like a team sport, right? Like, mm. I'm a Cardinals fan. I want the Cardinals to beat the 49ers, okay? Uh, sorry, Sarah Herman. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if you're watching a news network that treats your party like it needs to win and the other side needs to lose just because, mm. you know, not, not necessarily because of the goodness, the character, the 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 integrity of the members of that party, or because of the rightness of its ideas, but just because it's your team, like that's a really dangerous place for us to get as a country when when there are big public policy problems that affect all of us that need us to do something. Yeah, you know. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's that's what I think of the state of American politics. It's not good. It's yeah. not good right now. And, and it's, it started with, you know, the news environment and, the, and the, the, the way that political elites, you know, your congressmen, your representatives, your, your presidential candidates, et cetera, would all talk to each other. And, and the way the media, you know, talking heads would talk to each other. It's trickled down into our own dialogue as regular people now, mm-hmm. um, whether it's in our church congregations and morning, morning Bible studies, people we have coffee with, people we work with. Like, it has bled down to that level now where... I think, like talking about politics has always been a sensitive issue for sure. Sure. But I feel like I have noticed a big difference now versus 20 years ago mm. of how difficult it is to have politics come up in any social setting, whether it's talking with your family over dinner or whether mm. it's, uh, you know, extended family and, and whatnot at holidays um, or, or if people at work, like it's just gotten to a place where everybody wants to avoid it and just, you know, let me just... I've got my opinion, you got your opinion, let's just stay out of each other's way because, mm. you know, we don't want it to get uncomfortable, and it will. 
And that's that's tough. That's a tough place to be as a democracy if people feel uncomfortable talking about anything with each other. Yeah. Oh. What's um, I've asked you this bef- uh, before uh, because I'm just so uh, terrible at figuring it out myself. But like, mm-hmm. how do you parse through news sources, and how do you like? Can can you give me an idea of what kind of sources of information you typically go to, and uh, and how you kind of sort through yeah. truth from falsehood? How how do you stay informed? I guess is oh, what man. I'm asking. What's so that? so I have my own approach and and sources that I have grown to trust, um, but. You know, for satire me to say websites, sat, it, certainly, certainly oh, satire websites, Jake. Um, so that being said, like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to ascribe, you know, gospel truth to any of these because, sure. of course, every person has their biases. Yeah. And that includes, you know, these news sources that even even the news sources that attempt to present news and opinion balanced and unbiased where possible. Uh, still, you can't discount biases of, of yeah. people, right? Yep. Um, but some general rules of thumb that that I found are um, more news sources is generally better, you know, than than fewer. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you have you know locked yourself into one twenty four hour news network uh, as as the one that's telling me the truth when the others are lying, um, that's that I feel like is a dangerous place to be. Okay. Right. Um, Generally speaking, I have found um, print media to do, uh, traditional print media to do a, a, a better job of relaying the news without spin. Like newspapers you're talking media. about? So newspapers and, of course, their, their online content, whether it's New York Times, Washington Post, uh, you know, uh, Washington Times, mm-hmm. um, Arizona Republic, yeah. you know, for, for local stuff, East Valley Tribune. They... They are still attempting to appeal to relatively broad audiences across the country, mm-hmm. and and therefore, they're they have and they have journalistic standards that have been in place for many many decades uh, that are taught at universities to aspiring professional journalists. So, does that mean that they're always right and they're always unbiased? Of course not, but but it does mean that certainly more so than watching you know commentary on a twenty four hour news network, you're going to get yeah. a pretty straight story. Um, so. So that's one. Um, I have, I have always been a, personally. I've always been a big fan of of some of the publicly funded sources. Not that they get all their their money from public sources, but National Public Radio, NPR, um, uh, PBS, Public Broadcasting Service. Right? Mm-hmm. They they have because they're they're based on donors and foundations and and not on advertisers. Although they are starting to <laughs> take in some advertising dollars. Um, and and because they get a little bit of public funding, they're they're very cautious about how they go about presenting news. Mm-hmm. And and you'll never watch a PBS NewsHour segment, for example, where they talk about a tough issue. If if they have somebody who's going to you know be a, a Republican strategist who talks about you know a particular issue, they're they're always going to have a Democratic strategist as well, mm-hmm. and some other you know. And then and the sources that they bring in to have the discussions are often not partisan sources. They're often university professors, government mm-hmm. experts, mm-hmm. you know, people who have real expertise on the issue. So uh, that's what I really look for, is places that are drawing their information from 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 genuine experts who have information that I don't, right? Yeah. Uh, and trying to, to, to use those. So with that, I, I, you know, I still do read a variety of sources. What I try to stay off of is 
you know, my social media feed specifically for, for news. Um, I will go to, if I go to the front page of the New York times.com or the Washington times.com or, or, or other sources, whether they have a right wing or left wing kind of lean to them, their front page news is going to, you know, on their actual website, will give like everything they're reporting for the day. Right. And not just what my friends want me to see that they're reporting necessarily. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. So, and, and I certainly value the opinion of my friends. I'm not saying that, but, um, but I just try to stay off of, you know, Facebook feed is like the place I get my news. Right. Yeah. Yep. So that's that's a little bit of the the rule of thumb okay. um, for me, but you know others have their own you know things that they do sure. for their own reasons. So sure, yeah. well, I, yeah, I just like getting kind of your your take on that, and so I can hear what you're doing. And yeah, like like you said, it's well, it's it's a it's about that plurality. It sounds right, like you right. know where you just want to get different perspectives and and see where where some of the overlap is, and and try to discern from there. Certainly, um, what kind of thoughts are going through your mind? uh about this election year that we're in man um more than anything else um i i just fear for the unity of of us as people as americans as christians as um as just fellow human beings um it it feels to me like we're we're letting um, politics become something that tears us apart increasingly. That um, oh man, it's uh it here's here's an example of this whole like institutional trust thing. So you know we we have a democracy, and and with democracy that means that the majority rules and. You know, makes the laws certainly right. It, when majority gets elected into office, they get to to have policymaking control. At the end of the day, what actually gives them that power? What actually gives them that legitimacy and and the faith of the public to say, oh, they're they're passing the laws, they're they're enforcing the laws, and we have a responsibility to respect that and to do what they say, right? The thing that actually gives them that legitimacy is our faith in the democratic process itself. It it's the losing side's willingness to say, you know, our side lost, but they still have the right to, the other side still has the right to make laws right now, mm-hmm. okay? And um, and the election system itself was valid and fair, right? And, and we'll just have to try again two years from now to win back control of Congress or mm-hmm. four years from now to win back control of the presidency, mm-hmm. okay? What I see happening is a a characterization of the process itself by the people who lose or think they're going to lose as rigged, mm. as a sham, as corrupted, as as the other side cheated, right? You had allegations of like, oh, well, this election went this way, but millions of undocumented immigrants were able to cast votes in the election, mm. even though no evidence whatsoever said that was true. Oh, this election's being rigged and the entire media is in it for for one side and they're trying to make you vote a certain way. And, and crush this other person, even though there's, you know, no evidence of that as a generalized media environment. Like, there's media on all sides. Like, we can watch and, yeah. and read whatever we want. There's no orchestrated, you know, media elite that gets to, you know, like, sell us the story they want to sell us. You know, there, there's too many sources. Yeah. Um, but um, 
but but there there is a lot of people who are, are starting to think that that you can't trust the process and therefore the outcome of that process is illegitimate. Um, that's that's truly at the end of the day the only thing that makes a democracy work is the willingness of the losers to respect the results of the mm. process and to uh, and to continue going about their daily lives, you know, believing in the legitimacy of of the government, mm. um, and. And and so we have that just kind of big, you know, national issue of like, what does our, what does our constitution and our constitutional process look like if people cease to have faith in all of the actors that they disagree with, hmm. right? And then there's and then there's just you know us as a society and socially, you know, how how do we continue to see each other as, you know, image bearers of God? worthy of of all of the respect and dignity that that every person should deserve as a as a person who is made in God's image when we are at the same time you know completely distrustful of the motivations of you know one side of the aisle and believing that everybody who who votes a certain way is trying to destroy this country and trying to destroy my way of life mm. you know um the labels that that are getting thrown around with with that right now whether it's you know you know, racist or socialist or whatever that people are, are lobbing at each other, communist people are throwing at each other these days. Yeah. It's, uh, it's really, uh, it's, it, it's hard to imagine a future where, you know, you know, after this election, things end up better, <laughs> you know, like, because, mm -hmm. because I think this, that, that so many people are, are attaching themselves to the outcome of this, this presidency and the, and the, and the outcome of the presidential election as being, you know, such a life or death scenario for the for for their future and the future of the country, right? Mm. Um, on the one hand, politics should be high stakes. Like we should pay attention to public issues and believe that they matter, and want to pay and want to do our part to be informed and vote accordingly. On the other hand, we kind of need politics to be low stakes. We need politics to be a, a thing that you know will happen. And then trust that good government will happen running in the background as I go ahead and live my life. And that, you know, who the president is won't really change that much for me personally mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you know? Um, and, and on a side note with that, this is, you know, I guess kind of an unrelated idea. Um, I think we're paying way too much attention to the presidency specifically. Mm. I think we are, I think we're staring at that one office as though all our hopes and dreams, you know, can be, can be solved or 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 uh, delivered if we get just the right person in that one office when like that is not the system that we've built in the United States. We have a federal system. There's yeah. there are lots of levels of government. Um and and people who are are avid news consumers are spending, you know, an overwhelming amount of their time focusing on what the president's doing, who's running for president and and what that election's going to look like and totally ignoring who's on their city council. Who's their mayor? Mm. Who's their state legislator? Uh, you know, who are these other you know Arizona officials, the state treasurer, the superintendent of public instruction, the the secretary of state, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the reality is that like our participation as citizens matters so much more at that local level than it does at at the federal level, right? No matter how much time, energy, and and money you put into um, that presidential race. It's it's really going to make like next to no difference in the final outcome. Mm. You know, these are candidates who are raising billions of dollars. 
Uh, there are super PACs spending billions of dollars on their behalf, and there are hundreds of millions of people casting votes in that election, right? Meanwhile, you know, from my experience running for state office, the, the state representative, like the state candidates that I was interacting with and going to town halls with, they were giving out their personal cell phone number to anybody who wanted it hmm. because they wanted their constituents to have access to them. They were like taking extended periods of time to just have face-to-face conversations with people about what are the issues that, that you're worried about? What can the state government do about this issue? Um, and, and you have all the access in the world you want to those officials. And your vote is one of, you know, 8,000 instead of one of, you know, 160 million, mm. you know, in, in deciding who those officials are going to be. Um, volunteering your time for a presidential candidate will make a little bit of difference, but volunteering your time for those state representative candidates is the difference between them getting on the ballot or not in mm. some cases, because, you know, we're talking about such a small scale of, of what they, they need. Um, so I, I would just, you know, encourage everyone, if it's possible for you to kind of turn your eyes away from, from the federal system a little bit, you know, obviously we need to pay attention to it, but, but just look at, look at your local officials a little bit more identify people who are good people who have good character who you who you believe you can trust who appear to be informed and and pitch in something for them pitch in a $5 clean elections contribution for them pitch in a, a $100 donation to their campaign because it makes such a bigger difference to them uh, you know volunteer to go circulate a petition for them in 2020 uh, hope, assuming that we're allowed out of our houses by <laughs> by summer of 2020 uh, you know, because they're going to be reaching out for that help. They're going to be looking for that help to get on the ballot coming up for the for the August primaries in 2020. Mm. Um, and we need good people at all levels of government, not just in the White House. Um, and we can make a much bigger difference here than we can in Washington. So we've just uh, spent a good amount of time talking about ooh, yeah. politics yeah, yeah. and stuff. Um, but, you know, as you mentioned it seems to be kind of like a a taboo thing, a difficult thing, especially yeah, yeah. if you get more into like your particular uh, views on policy and stuff, which we haven't gotten yeah, into. Yeah. So I'm curious how you try to navigate discussions of political issues in social settings. And, and I want to pr- be particular about with other church attenders, because yeah. as a church family, we want to... Uh, you know, not that you know the 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 pastoral staff has been great and responsible with not using the podium to advocate a certain Certainly. way of voting, you know, Absolutely. and that's so, so important. But when we're sitting in the coffee cafe or when we're hanging out with other parents waiting for our kids to get out of their class, what there there's just other social situations. Maybe after a small group has yeah. let out, you're finished with the Bible study, you're just hanging out, you know. We're gonna find ourselves in situations as we are being a family in the local church where uh, you know, may, it'll be relevant to talk about uh, political issues. And so I'm curious what kinds of maybe little mental things you've adopted in your mind yeah. to help you navigate those conversations and make them productive and uh, useful rather than bring, bringing tension or, or separation or distance in relationships. Yeah. So um, for one thing, I, I'm sort of fortunate in this regard that you know, being a high school government teacher, this is a a thing I have to navigate a lot because, you know, talking about politics is what I have to do for a living. And I'm doing it as a, you know, paid employee of the state, mm-hmm. uh, of the school district. And so, you know, I can't um, 
you know, advocate, you know, a particular party or another, you know, as I'm doing, you know, your government lecture on Congress or the federal budget or, or sure. whatever. So um, in in 16 years of teaching now, I've, I, I feel like this is a good record, I think. I've got one parent who ever called the school front office and said that, you know, Mr. Davis is trying to indoctrinate kids. <laughs> and if I told you why they made that phone call, uh, it would be, you, you'd see the ridiculousness of it. But um, <laughs> anyway, um, the, the biggest things that, that I think are, um, for one thing, a, a lot of people who just sort of know my biography, you know, oh, you're a government teacher, you follow this stuff, oh, you ran for office once, you know, they want information, and so they come to me and they ask for information. And when, when people are genuinely just asking, hey, what do you think? Tell me what you think, because I know you follow this stuff. Like, I, I feel free in that moment to kind of lay out what I've seen and what I, what I believe, uh, because I think that they're genuinely just asking for my opinion. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, I, so I give it, right? Um, in other circumstances, um, especially in, in conversations with people at church, for me, the, the guiding light for, for political discussions has to be, you know, what, what is the gospel and what does, uh, what does our faith teach us about, um, public policy, politics, and, and this discussion that we're about to have here. And, um, you know, value of, of other people and a belief in, in needing to, um, to respect and care for and, and minister to the needs of, of the least of these, uh, as, as Christ taught us, is, is central to that, right? So does that mean that the, that the government has to be the one that does that? No, certainly not. Like, um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily make it the Christian thing to do to, to have, you know, food and housing assistance for the poor. Um, maybe it is, but, but maybe it isn't. And so like, I I guess in that regard, what I would say is, um, if we as the church are trying to bring about the kingdom of God through the American political process, we're, we're going about it the wrong way. Mm. That is not where our salvation lies. That is not where the salvation of our society is going to lie, right? Our, Mm. our... Our kingdom, right? This this American kingdom under under a constitutional representative system, um, you know, as as much as all systems in the world, all systems of authority have been put in place by God, as Romans teaches us, um, this one is just like all of the others. It is it is the the physical earthly kingdom that we have that we live under that we must respect its authority um, and participate in the you know in the ways that we uh, that we should. Uh, but our responsibility as people and as individuals is so much bigger than that when it comes to um, the gospel and and bringing about you know the kingdom of God uh, through this life on earth, right? So, um, so so that's a perspective. When whenever we're whenever I'm engaged in a political conversation with with people, whether it's you know Thursday morning men's Bible study or just talk in the cafe or or whatever, if if it feels to me like you know, a a group of people is being, you know, denigrated in some way as like not as as worthy or as deserving of of the the respect and dignity of of you know being an image bearer of God. Like those are the places where I just go like, but we can't think that way. You know, we we have to to realize that like uh, 
you know, every person is is deserving of access to the gospel and deserving of our care and and empathy and um, so um, so there's that. Now now when it comes to like just regular issues of public policy of like you know gun rights or or the federal budget or taxation or whatever it is, you know, like because I don't see those issues as being, you know make or break when it comes to the faith, right? When it comes to to our place as Christians, like I feel comfortable having those conversations and disagreements with people, you know, like might feel differently about, you know, spending on the public school system than somebody else does. And 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 I have an interest in that as a teacher, you know, I want, you know, us to have, you know, well-funded and, and well-paid, you know, schools and teachers. But, uh, but I don't, I don't think that someone else is necessarily, you know, um, uh, in the wrong morally or ethically if they if they have a difference of opinion there right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um i i would like them to have that opinion on an informed basis and i will try to lay out the case for why i think that you know um the the red for ed movement was was a, a really tough time for this right because there's you know a lot of us who worked in the school system who who had very strong opinions about what we saw as a funding crisis in the schools that had been persistent for uh, for almost a decade, right? Um, and yet, you know, there were certainly people who who did not have a stake in the public school system the way I did, you know, as an employee of the schools and as a person with two kids in the public school system. You know, I recognized that other people did not have that same stake as I did. Their kids were in charter schools or homeschooled. Their kids had been out of school for a long time and this wasn't, you know, applicable to them anymore. And you know, being able to at least say, you know, let me tell you what I'm seeing in the schools. Let me tell you the reality of what I'm faced with. If they can take that information and and hear it and understand it and still disagree, that's fine. And, and you know, that's what, you know, a free society is supposed to, you know, be able to do. Yeah. Um, but what I didn't want them to have is, is a whole lot of misinformation, lack of understanding, and or, or a belief that, you know, that this was, um, you know, a, a teacher's union kind of just seizing on a, on a moment to just make themselves rich somehow, you know, when they already have all the money they could possibly need. Or, or this idea that like, oh, if you give money to the school districts, it's just going to all get wasted on administration. Like, sure. Is there some spending that, you know, some people think we could do with, and some people think we'd do without in, in any school district or, or other public institution? Sure. That's the case in private institutions too. There are plenty of people who you could point out in in a you know health insurance company or a or a um, or or any other business where you'd look at and say like uh, do they really need that to spend you know the money I spent on that product on that particular commercial you yeah. know whatever. you yeah. you could do that with with any institution yeah everybody's going to disagree on what the spending priority should be you know um, but I at least wanted them to know what we had seen as teachers in, mm. in the real world. Um, so I, I guess that's, that's it. It's like, I, I like, you know, conversations about politics to be based on, on information and on, on helping each other understand, um, reality from our context, from our perspective, mm-hmm. um, and, and hearing what their reality is in their perspective. Yeah. You know, there were a lot of people who had, um, things to say during that whole debate, um, about, you know, their property tax bill and what, you know, what that had looked like over the years. And like, it, that was worth me hearing to know that like, what we're asking for is going to affect, 
you know, what you have to pay in taxes and can you actually afford to do that? Is mm. it worth it to you to do that? Like I, I wanted to know those things and I, I'm still going to end up with my own opinion as a result, but at least I know what, um, what the, the effects of what I'm asking for are going to be, yeah. you know? So that, that's sort of some of the, the guiding principles I've had. I don't know how easy those are to summarize into bullet points, but, um, it just sort of how I've, how I've navigated it. Well, I think what I, I think one bullet point maybe that I'm here in a lot of that is in conversations seeking to understand where another person is coming Certainly, from yeah. and, you know, making it, making that a real priority rather than just kind of sharing what you've already come to conclude, but really trying to empathize with them and understand, even if you end up disagreeing with them, understanding where they're coming from, why they feel the way they totally. do. Totally. Yeah. Know? That's yeah. good. Good job, Peter. Well, thank you. <laughs> this if only is... the scriptures had something to say about that, of being slow to speak and quick to listen. And... Mm. Oh, man. We'll there to, it is. We'll we'll thanks, we... Pastor Jay. Huh, we'll, have to talk to, we'll have to talk to God about yeah. a revision, that maybe he can add that. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. This has, been, this has been great. There's so much, I mean, there's a lot of meaty stuff in this conversation, so hopefully people will not just listen to this once, but consider coming back and revisiting it, because there's a lot there, and... Uh, so I, I really appreciate just how God has wired you and the experiences he's brought you through and then your uh, positioning in a, as a part of our church family to just allow us to benefit from that. So thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for the invitation. I really appreciate it, guys. This was a, this was a good time. It was not, uh, not quite <laughs> as awful as I initially thought it might be when, uh, when I got the invitation. So. Oh, good. Just That's kind our of... standard. Not quite as awful <laughs> yeah. as you yeah, thought excellent. it would be. Yeah. Just kind of awful. <laughs> All right, thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. Okay, Jake, so as we just said before we started recording, there was a ton in that conversation, mm-hmm. and so there's, I mean, there's all kinds of things that we could talk for a long time about, but if, if you were to just pick out one thing that kind of pops out, what, what would be maybe the first thing that would pop into your head? Yeah. Um, I'm going to break your rule. I'm break gonna, it. I'm going to go with the first. The first thing that I want to say is it was at the beginning of the podcast, and and Jeff talked about the reality that he wanted to commit his life to ministry, hmm. and that wasn't going to be in the pastoral realm. And hmm. I, yeah, I. One of the things that I love about that comment is that Jeff's life has borne that out. Yeah, uh, as somebody whose team Jeff has volunteered on, um, I've watched him look for multiple different avenues and arenas all throughout his his life uh, where he's chosen to get involved in uh, worship ministry. He's chosen to get involved in high school ministry. Right now, he and Marissa are serving in junior high ministry and in worship ministry. And mm-hmm. so there's just so many different ways in which Jeff views his life as the avenue to, to minister to people, which that's... So it's just as a pastor and as somebody who benefits from that, it's so cool to watch somebody who's taking seriously the call that all of his life is as an ambassador for Jesus. And yeah. so I just, I love, I love hearing Jeff say that, and and I love getting to watch that be true of his life. Yeah. Um, and then I think the second thing that I, that I really appreciated about Jeff's interview is how he's modeling a posture of really seeking to understand and to listen to people. Hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, you're not going to walk away from that podcast having a clear picture of here's exactly what Jeff believes on X, Y, and Z issues. And I think that's the point Mm -hmm. that Jeff is seeking for 
us to have a posture of, okay, before we get to politics, we have to get to the fact that people are people and they're image bearers yeah. of God. And so any conversation that we have has to have that as a starting point. Yeah. And I just feel like Jeff models that so well. Yeah. Yeah. It the the idea of everyone being an image bearer of God stands out to me too. And and I think that um you know, it wasn't necessarily something like one moment where he said something. It was more like collectively a lot of things that he said kind of made me ponder about our tendency to find our identity in things other than the fact that God made us in his image and loves us intensely, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think as and we don't even realize consciously that we're trying to find our sense of self-worth and our sense of status or whatever in these other things like like uh, politics or like the view that we have on things or our ability to win an argument or, you know, whatever, um, but, uh, but instead to find our identity in Christ and in the worth that he gives us, all that he brought up about like social media and, uh, you know, all, all the different kind of like emotionally charged feelings that can come into these, you know, conversations and just and that that come from people spouting off things, you know, in their own kind of vacuum and being in an echo chamber and stuff. That all speaks to me of us having a tendency to stay in our comfort zone and to be affirmed by other people, yep. you know. And uh, and so, yeah, his, his just his interest in wanting to really understand other people and value other people, I think is, uh, yeah, so, so on point to this whole issue of, of politics. Yeah. And yeah, so that was great. That was great. Um, and that is also it for this episode of Living Stones. You can follow Red Mountain Community Church on Instagram and Facebook and go to rmcchurch.org slash podcast to participate in our podcast question, leave feedback for us, or leave a question for our next guest. On our next episode, we'll be talking with Tibid, who will share about Tibid. T-B-D. I don't know who that is. Um, Again, you can go to rmcchurch.org slash podcast to submit your question for Tibid. You think that's how they pronounce that? TBD. Tibid. So you can go to rmcchurch.org slash podcast to submit your question for Tibid, and you may just hear it read on the next episode. In the meantime, I'm Peter Franson. And I'm Jake Audjeri. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you sometime on a Sunday at some point when we start all kind of getting together for Sundays again. <laughs>